that AI can use those brain patterns to start uh, generating images that it thinks that you are watching. And in a lot of cases, uh, what you are watching and what you imagine have similar neural patterns. So right. you can start to imagine being able to project your thoughts through generative AI and create paintings, uh, you know, create, uh, you know, mind shows, anything mm -hmm. you can think of that would come out of that. And honestly, I don't think that we're that far away. We're going through something absolutely historic. Technologies across the board are growing exponentially. It's a disruption that's going to completely redefine the way businesses compete. In the next decade, we're going to lose 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies. The exponential growth of computing is continuing. AI is nowhere near its full potential. Whether you like it or not, that the future cannot be stopped by anyone. Welcome back to another episode of Future Tech and Foresight. So a few weeks ago, I had a guest on, uh, David Moses, and he and I discussed the potential of neurotechnology and specifically the therapeutic and kind of future benefits of invasive brain-machine interfaces. So there's actually also an entire other side of this fascinating technology that isn't invasive, where you more or less just put on a wearable device to get the benefits of this neurofeedback. Uh, but what kind of benefits can actually be obtained and what kind of devices are out there? So personally, shortly after learning about Neuralink, I first heard of non-invasive neurotechnology, strangely enough, coming out of Facebook. So though Facebook eventually stopped its research into this technology to focus more on the metaverse, to myself and others, it became really clear that kind of the floodgates, if you will, had opened up for a fascinating and I guess you could say somewhat terrifying new path that technology was enabling. So today, I'm happy to have on Dr. Cody Rawl. He comes onto the podcast to give uh, more of an insight into what this technology can do, what benefits it can provide, and how it may be used in the future. So Dr. Cody Rawl is an ABPN board-certified Navy-trained psychiatrist and a founding member and former media director for Stanford Brainstorm. He was a former board member of the American Psychiatric Association's annual Psychiatry Innovation Lab. He completed his obligation to the U.S. Navy in July 2021 and is now pursuing the use of brain-computer interface technologies for mental health. He is the founder of Tech for Psych, a media and relations company that covers advancements in technology related to neuroscience and mental health treatment. Great. Well, thank you very much, Cody, for joining me on the podcast today to talk about neurotechnology, uh, EEG devices, and kind of brain-machine interface, uh, kind of all in general. So uh, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on, Mark. It's a topic that I love talking about, so it's really fun to do a podcast on it. Absolutely. Um, so the way that I like to start most interviews is just to ask kind of your general interest and how you got interested initially into this uh, topic, because I think that specifically when we're talking about uh, neurotech as kind of an umbrella term, many people still haven't heard about this or fully understand that it's kind of an entire uh, burgeoning industry. Right. Well, I'm a psychiatrist in training. I did my residency training with the Navy in Bethesda, Maryland, across from National Institute of Health at Walter Reed. And at Walter Reed, they had the most advanced brain imaging mm -hmm. technologies in the world there. They had PET scans, fMRI, uh, DTI. There was a 60 Minutes special on it back in the day where they were okay. taking a look at veterans that were 
coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq after they had been exposed to IED blasts. Hmm. And they were find, finding things in the brain that had never been seen before, including uh, myelin sheath shearing and other things that hmm. were really sad, but also elicited this fact that there is uh, structural altercations of the brain that create psychological symptoms. I think that that was a really kind of a turning point for the general public in understanding that if you have anxiety, it really can mm. come from structural changes in the brain. And the reason why we thought it was just purely psychological and not organic based is that we just simply didn't have the imaging necessary to actually see what was going on in the brain. And mm. doing uh, rounds on traumatic brain injury ward and working with neuropsychiatrists that were meeting with the president and all these just very fascinating things, maybe yeah. so interested in brain imaging. And that's really where my fascination with the brain and imaging started. And that sort of progressed into brain computer interface over the years as I started look, taking a look at different wearables and talking about them on YouTube. Fascinating. Um, so, I mean, we're going to be talking, I think, in large part about these wearables, these specifically like non-invasive um, uh, technologies. Could you, uh, for the, for the, I guess, uninitiated, could you describe a little bit how they work? Because I think that uh, just the technology at its at its heart, uh, at a at a general sense, would be fascinating for some people to hear. Yeah, well, brain computer interface is such a large topic. You've mm -hmm. got your invasive and non invasive. I did listen to your last podcast where you had the UCLA researcher mm -hmm. on, and mm -hmm. it was great listening to his take on BCI. So I think that a lot of people think that BCI is those implantable methods where you have a patient that had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And they need to move a mouse cursor on the screen with their brain, or they need to move a robotic arm, hopefully one day. But the way that I see brain computer interface is more comprehensive, I think, where yeah. you have the ability to assess the brain with different biomarkers. And really, that's sort of the holy grail, grail for as far as uh, mental health treatment goes. Uh, I've become frustrated, as many psychiatrists have over the years, of uh, to having patients with complaints, but not being able to get biomarkers, not actual measures to make a diagnosis and see how well treatments are helping your patient. Mm -hmm. And so assessment has become something that is more and more important in the mental health field. So you can see where that's different than moving a, a mouse cursor on the screen. You could use different technologies that uh, assess the brain, whether that be using EEG or uh, FNIRS, which uses a harmless red light to bounce light off the blood vessels in your brain and see the blood flow, sort of like what fMRI does. And mm -hmm. there are so many different applications of that that we can talk about. But I think that some of the ones that are really breaking into the mainstream right now are sleep assessment, neurofeedback technologies, and uh, other things that assess and train your focus during the day will be more applicable to people in their everyday lives than you know, people that unfortunately have developed some kind of condition where they've lost control of their limbs and their mm -hmm, motor control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so I think we're also going to be discussing kind of like what is currently available and then what is hopefully going to be available in the next uh, little time, like in the future here. But um, if we look back a little bit, uh, so you were discussing, you know, at this um, uh, with the military that you were that you were working with, they were using some of the most advanced technology at the time. Um, but I'm assuming that that wasn't necessarily kind of like for consumers and for the everyday person. Um, how has kind of this um, neurotech industry changed? Maybe maybe you can go back, say, 10 years or five years or so. How has the technology advanced up until today? 
Yeah, it's been incredible to watch and be a part of as I've talked about these technologies on the internet. And back in the day, there was Macrotelect from China, Emotive here in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, Muse has been around for a while. And really, if you put a sensor on someone's scalp, you get a lot of different signals and only some of those are actual brain signals. The amplitude is really low. Mm. The problem is, is you get contamination from movement, uh, muscle contamination. Um, if a muscle contracts in that area, it's going to have a large signal compared to the actual brain signal. So there was criticism in the early days of these different wearables that were touting being able to get EEG signals and use that to help train your focus and that type of thing. And people argued very rightly so that these are just EOG muscle contractions that are affecting mm. the signal. <clears throat> but what's really happened over the last five to 10 years is uh, better algorithms to filter out noise in the signal, as well as better material science. And EEG is still a very noisy signal, but we've been able to make significant improvements to it, both in form factor, as well as the software that filters out the signal. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, I love AFNIRS. I think AFNIRS has a lot of potential. Uh, there's less contamination of signal when you use a red laser light to track blood flow of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Kernel has tried to do is uh, evolve it into a full head coverage helmet that you could use to do assessments of ketamine treatment. They've put out uh, a paper on recently, as well as assessments throughout the day. And really unveil a lot that about neuroscience and mental health that we had no idea existed before. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's, that's a great segue um, into kind of the applications, right? So um, is, or yeah, is most of this technology focused on healthcare? Uh, I know that uh, you've done a couple of videos and you discuss about uh, mental health, but is, is that kind of generally where this is moving into? Or is that kind of what the industry is focused on? Or are there other applications for this, uh, for this fascinating technology? There's a lot of different companies. There's well over 20 companies mm -hmm. in the consumer neurotechnology space uh, and many more that are in stealth mode and getting funding right now. Right. So they're all sort of trying to figure out the path to profitability because, I mean, it, they are a company and they need to uh, generate revenue to stay alive and continue to develop the technology. So it really just depends on what company you were talking about. You have uh, Dream out of France that released a consumer wearable that would track your sleep throughout the night. And what happened with them is they actually went underground for a couple of years because I think they had people whispering in their ear that this is an actual real medical innovation here that you mm. can get insurance companies to pay for. And now we've seen them come back with the, the Dream 3 and working with insurance companies in the state of California now to get reimbursed for having patients use their sleep wearable mm. at night to track their sleep to replace the horribly outdated method of sleep studies, which is polysomography. You expect someone to go into a cold clinical uh, clinic hospital room and sleep normally with a bunch of EEG yeah. leads hooked up to them. And now the technology allows you to take this soft wearable EEG system home that tracks your breath rate and other biomarkers to give physicians a better uh, assessment of sleep tracking. Mm -hmm. So you've got stories like that. You've also got stories of NextMind out of, Par out of Paris that uses uh, signals from the occipital lobe of the brain. I don't know if you ever saw the NextMind device, but it sort of has, so. is a band yeah. around and it's got the electrodes in the back of your head. And that one was actually uh, bought up by Snapchat 
the company Snapchat. And no one knows really what Snapchat wants to do with that technology yet, but there's been speculation that they're going to incorporate that into some kind of augmented reality headset mm. that they're working on. And uh, some of the ones that are really exciting right now are headphones. So there's a number of different companies working on both in-ear as well as around-ear sensors that can track your focus and uh, help choose different songs to help you focus better as well as cancel out uh, external noise to, to help you in your your everyday uh, work life. So there's a lot of different examples of going both healthcare as well as going uh, ma mainstream consumer technology. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I understand, one of the kind of added benefits or maybe one even of the main benefits of this is that as these devices are able to kind of understand your brain to a, to a much better level than, than say, uh, traditional labs, um, whether we're talking about uh, the choice of music or just um, just monitoring in general, it's much more personalized, right? So uh, you were talking about uh, these headphones that are able to uh, maybe relax you a little bit by choosing the right type of music. Is that based on um, a much more personalized approach uh, because of the kind of information that, uh, that these uh, devices are able to pick up? Yeah, it's fascinating what's going on right now with the actual software with machine learning and AI. Because not only mm. can you get crowd data to feed into the algorithms to improve the efficacy of the systems that are uh, being used with these devices, but also you have customization by analyzing the individual user signals over the course of days, months, maybe even years. Mm -hmm. So the device knows you better and better and can respond to your needs better and better based on biosignals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and I guess uh, as you know, as we've seen uh, ChatGPT and some of these fascinating generative uh, AIs coming out over the last little while, uh, people are becoming more and more aware of the possibility and I guess the overall power of artificial intelligence. And this is just going to feed into this industry uh, to make these things, uh, to make these devices a little bit more personalized, a little bit more powerful in their um, ability to. Uh, tell you which type of songs or which type of uh, activities, I guess, in the future uh, you'd be able to do, right? Correct. And some of this research that's coming out, even on the higher end, is downright spooky. I mean, mm. they can take fMRI these days and feed it into machine learning algorithms and have the computer understand uh, word by word through text what podcast you're listening to mm. Uh, mm. or even visual images that you're creating in your mind or, or watching right. videos and recreate those images simply based on the brain data alone. So that's the type of technology that gets me really excited because fMRI is sort of the highest resolution brain imaging technology that we have, but there are technologies coming along, including scaled down versions of fMRI, uh, including uh, FNIRs, as well as ultrasound and FNIR combinations that have a lot of potential to increase the resolution of the brain imaging technology. And then mm -hmm. combined with AI, we're really going to start seeing some pretty sci-fi futuristic things with brain-computer interface technology, I think, within the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've had a number of discussions with some of the uh, with some of the audience members about the kind of concerns, not specifically to neurotech, but just concerns in general about technology. AI is always kind of at the top of the list. Uh, I'm sure you've come across issues with uh, privacy, uh, ethics. Um, could you maybe touch on maybe some of the things that uh, that you might be concerned? I mean, obviously, both of us are excited about this technology and think that it's it's 
going to be largely beneficial. But with any kind of technology, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. So I'm sure that there's some kind of concerns out there that you've uh, that you've become aware of. Yeah, one of the best resources on this right now is a book that's coming out, I believe, on the 23rd of this mm. month, uh, 23rd of March. Uh, Nita Farani's book. She's a, a law professor out of Duke, and she spent a lot of time thinking about this. I, I just recently interviewed her on my channel. And uh, her book release will be this month. You'll probably see a lot of uh, press with her. Mm -hmm. So she's really talked about a couple of use cases that are somewhat concerning. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, at this point, you can use EEG on a criminal, for example, and not read their thoughts. But th I think this is a good use case for understanding where BCI and neurotechnology is mm -hmm. at right now, because you can't put one of these devices on someone's head and read their thoughts, thought by thought. But what mm -hmm. you can do is hook them up to an EEG device and show them different pictures of different people. And when the victim's face comes up, mm. they're going to have an actual EEG neurological reaction to that, most likely if they were a part of the crime scene and they can do pictures of crime scenes and that type mm. of thing. So you really start to get into some kind of uh, minority report situation where what mm. are the ethics behind being able to uh, gauge people's reactions through neurotechnology. And you can do things like that with um, determining pin codes, people's passcodes. Uh, so there are use cases that are becoming more and more concerning. And when I first started looking at this technology about eight years ago, mm -hmm. I thought that was so far yeah. cart ahead of the horse. We're not going to see this for a long time, but I've had a general sense that this is coming and Nita's book really illustrates this very well. And she had very high-end neuroscientists review every chapter in her book and all mm. of the descriptions of technology that she's talking about and validate that, yes, we are actually there right now. And she had this video on Instagram and TikTok that went viral because people are starting to feel like it's some kind of black mirror episode where right, we're already right. worried about AI and now you throw neurotechnology into the mix and it's got people really concerned. So I think that it's important to have these discussions. I'm not too worried that I'm going to start getting my brain hacked anytime soon, but I think the general discussion about the ethics behind these technologies is actually getting more focus on it, mm. which in my opinion is actually somewhat of a good thing because I think brain computer interface technologies could help us a lot in human society. Uh, mm -hmm. Brian Johnson at Kernel talks about uh, human scaffolding. We've never really used the human brain to build our environment properly. It, how do you design mm -hmm. a room? How do you design graphical mm -hmm. user interfaces? How do you design smartphones so that it's actually beneficial for a human brain instead of releasing a bunch of dopamine and getting you addicted to TikTok? So these are markers that we need to better improve our society. And the more attention that comes to it, the more capital flows into it, the more talent comes into it to further develop the technology, the, the, mm -hmm. fast, the faster the progression goes. And I think that it's important as AI becomes more powerful and we're going to need better means of de uh, developing our ecosystems and environments that are actually beneficial to us rather than detrimental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Uh, maybe just one um, follow-up question with regards to the the concerns, because I, I know that many of the audience members are going to be asking uh, things like this. Uh, when it comes to, um, uh, say, the regulatory environment, right? So I had I interviewed 
um, one of the uh, metaverse pioneers uh, a couple of months ago. And he was discussing how as the metaverse is uh, still forming, it's actually a lot easier to implement a lot of regulations and laws um, before everything is actually built out, uh, very contrary to how things were done with uh, smartphones, for instance. Um, are you uh, aware of any kind of um, regulation that's coming around um, uh, BCI technology as it's still being developed and as, you know, I, I still don't have one of these devices. So I'm sure that, you know, most of the listeners and I know most of my friends and people in my uh, networks uh, don't have these devices. So we're still, we're still talking about the early days here. Yeah. Again, Nita talked about this quite a bit in her book, Battle for Your Brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, Columbia University has uh, released a number of different uh, proposed regulations. One of mm. them is the right to mental privacy yeah. is uh, one of the the foremost number one categories. And I believe one foreign country has actually introduced legislation to include that within their governmental regulations, but uh, nothing in the States yet. It's been proposed and it's being talked about more and more as these technologies advance. Mm-hmm. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to uh, to track this as time goes on. So I'll probably have to have you uh, come back on at some point in the future, maybe a year or so, and you can discuss some of these uh, regulations and and how they've been uh, dealing with these kind of like crazy future that we're moving into. Right. Um, uh, maybe let's let's talk a little bit more tangibly. So I know that you have uh, used a number of these devices over the years. Um, and uh, you've obviously seen some benefits for yourself, but also for other people that have used it. Maybe you can touch on maybe one or two of these devices and uh, what kind of specific personal benefits um, uh, that, that you've encountered with them. Yeah, I think as far as wow factor, uh, I think NextMind was the most fun yeah. to show to my friends, just to show them, hey, you can calibrate with this device. And then depending on where you're looking on the screen, it's going to read your brainwaves and allow mm-hmm. you to control the screen. And I think that that was a really good use case wow factor for people to realize that brain-computer interface technology is coming. Mm. Personally, I've gotten most benefit from neurofeedback technologies, uh, both Muse and Mendy. Uh, mm-hmm. Muse is an EEG neurofeedback device that most people are probably familiar with. Mendy is a newer one that's coming out of Stockholm, Sweden, that uses f on the frontal lobe to help train your focus. Okay. What I've experienced is that with Mendy, I can get into some quite deep meditative states. It helps maintain my focus on a meditation object. Mm-hmm. And I do some energetic meditations with the Mendy, with, sorry, with the Muse training, I'm able to uh, maintain my focus for longer periods of time and um, access some more energetic uh, sensations that come from meditation. And Mendy has really helped train my focus as well, doing Mendy training uh, 10 to 15 minutes a morning. I call it the Mendy pull effect because after you train with this neurofeedback technology, it's almost like a magnetic pull mm. on your uh, attention that you can take into various activities, whether that be flow state during the workday, long distance running or meditation. It's helped mm-hmm. as well. Uh, one of the things that I've found about these technologies with neurofeedback technologies in particular is that it's hard to communicate the benefits that I've experienced. I think that people that make meditation a part of their daily lives and do it every day and read a lot of the materials that are out there about uh, Kriya Yoga and other energetic meditations know what I'm talking about. But for someone that has not had a lot of meditation experience or neurofeedback experience, Mm -hmm. it is difficult. And I was running a coaching program, a neurofeedback coaching program uh, 
using MindLift, which is a company out of uh, Tel Aviv that uses the Muse headband. And that program was very successful. I was able to uh, have groups of 10 people coming through. We would do group sessions. We would talk mm -hmm. about the different neurofeedback settings and talk about different meditative strategies to enhance focus or improve relaxation. But it is a challenge to communicate uh, mental strategies to mm -hmm. affect neurofeedback technology because a lot of it is subconscious. They've done a lot of papers and research on this that it's actually difficult to consciously control neurofeedback technologies. So you have to be dedicated to it. And if you think about how hard it is for people to dedicate 15 minutes a day to meditation and create uh, that habit, you're adding almost a whole other layer of, uh, you know, setting up the tech and putting it on and mm -hmm. making sure you understand the settings and getting it connected with your smartphone and using that to enhance your meditation, which adds probably another five or 10 minutes on it on a regular meditation session. So sure. there's a lot of challenges that come with <clears throat> neurofeedback technology. So, um, I think it's going to remain a niche within brain computer interface uh, field. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm still a big believer in it, but I think that for it to go mainstream, mainstream will be difficult just because people have difficulty setting a, a regular schedule of, mm -hmm. of training as compared to even meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been meditating uh, kind of the Vipassana style for 10 years or so. So I think I'll definitely have to try one of these things just as a, just as an interesting experiment and see what kind of uh, benefits or, or challenges there are uh, surrounding that technology. Um, but I do want to go back to the, to the first, uh, I think it was next mind that you mentioned. Uh, so this seems to be one of the main interests that I keep uh, hearing about whenever I start talking about neurotech and kind of the, the future of technology. So you mentioned the ability to, uh, I believe it was move your cursor, at least control your computer to, to I assume a limited extent, just with one of these uh, devices on your head. Um, and that your friends, you know, they have this, this wow factor. Uh, could you um, maybe describe a little bit of the limitations or the possibilities uh, of this technology? Again, I just had this uh, interview with um, uh, David Moses, who actually, you know, researches uh, invasive technologies, right? So there's a I believe the word he used was the fidelity is going to be yeah. significantly greater when you actually have, you know, electron um, the device connected to your brain. Uh, but if you can describe uh, the non-invasive capabilities, I think that'd be really interesting for myself, but also for other listeners. Yeah. So the way that NextMind actually works is they have to put a flickering tag on the screen that flickers at different frequency rates. Okay. And so the EEG signal is actually pretty robust in the occipital lobe, which is in the back of your head that analyzes visual information. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at a flickering tag, the EEG will uh, burst at a certain frequency and the software can pick that up and know which flickering tag you're, you're looking at on the screen. So it's mm -hmm. interesting because you can set up a user interface and depending on where you're looking, be able to interact with the screen, mm, but it's not okay. at the level of thinking, I want to go here. I want to go there. Uh, so what he's talking about is actually, um, I think he was talking about motor control of the, of the speech centers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's where invasive definitely has an advantage over uh, non-invasive is that these cognitive processes that have smaller amplitude of neuronal activation can get picked up by an implantable. Whereas with wearables, you really have to find these robust 
biomarkers to create the applicability. It was interesting with the advertising of NextMind because I think they went a little far. Initially, it looked like NextMind was going to be able to tell whether you were looking at a circle or a triangle mm -hmm. and be able to navigate screens in that way. And when it became apparent that it was actually a flickering tag that was put on these different shapes, it was, okay, that's not as high fidelity as I thought it was going to be, but at least that's something. Mm -hmm. But there has been research coming out to show that you actually can use uh, high-density EEG to make out shapes just based on the brain data alone. And as the software gets better and better at filtering out noise and capturing the actual brain data, EEG, I think, is actually going to be able to allow you to look at different shapes and have different responses from graphical user interfaces based on what shape you're looking at. Mm. So this stuff is coming. It's just at a certain kind of infancy state right now. And the question becomes, well, do you really need a, a brain implant if if you look at a shape and you can wear one of these EEG wearables and it can tell what shape you're looking at? That's actually some pretty good uh, user cases. And you can imagine all the different things you could do with that in terms of navigating in AR and VR environments, uh, doing different things with your smartphone. Mm -hmm, so it mm -hmm. starts to stimulate the imagination of what's possible in the next five years, really. There's a company in um, uh, California that is called Cognixion that's working with mm -hmm. ALS patients. And it's actually an AR headset that also, from my understanding, uses flickering tags. Mm -hmm. But you can use that with a uh, keyboard and have the patient look at different uh, keys and, and type depending on which flickering tags they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And the problem with implantables, as you know, is there's such a large risk for mm -hmm. infection. Uh, crossing the blood-brain blood barrier is such a uh, difficult thing to do in terms of keeping things sterile, making sure you don't get an mm -hmm. infection. Because if you do get an infection in the central nervous system, it can be very difficult to treat. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um so uh, one of the, I guess, one of the central themes of the of this podcast as well is to discuss how it, these technologies don't just benefit or inhibit or limit individuals, but also what's the what's the benefit for organizations or for businesses in the future. Um, so I, I mean, I can assume maybe some sort of like uh, meditation workshops, which I think are, are becoming more and more popular for corporations. But maybe uh, maybe there's some other insights that you can share that uh, that would be beneficial for organizations, businesses to be using these kinds of fascinating technologies? Uh, well, this is where some of the controversy comes in mm -hmm. again. And going back to mm -hmm. battle for your brain, talked quite a bit about this. Uh, I was just at CES here in Las Vegas earlier this year, and uh, th there was a hard hat with EEG sensors in it. And it talked about this quite a bit in the book where uh, in China, they were actually having um, train conductors, construction workers, uh, pilots wear EEG technology mm -hmm. to track their focus. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that, there's benefits for the company, making sure that their employees aren't drowsy when they're trying to fly a plane or uh, you know, do what they do on locomotives. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you have this ethical issue of, you know, Amazon's already tracking if people are taking breaks and yeah. when they're clocking in and clocking out. And there's a lot of spyware, bossware stuff that can be installed on our computers these days to even mm -hmm. track keystrokes. So it's like, where do you draw the line? Because they can tell with EEG central peripheral uh, attention as well as distraction. So they can tell if you're, you know, focusing on a memo or scrolling through 
TikTok. So, right, right. Um, so there's uh, there's pros and cons to having that type of technology in the workplace. I think that some companies have tried to implement uh, some sort of like brain gym, go and relax with neurofeedback technology. I think that there's some interesting use cases, but it hasn't become mainstream yet. I think that one of the things that is going to popularize this is going to be the the headphones that have EEG sensors in them. Mm-hmm. There's already spinoffs from LG. There's the LG Breeze that's being used in South Korea right now. Uh, there's a spinoff from um, Alphabet, the Google parent company called NextSense that's investigating this technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emotive already has their M8. Uh, earbuds out that are being used in the workplace. And I think that this is something that is being investigated and we don't know yet really how it's going to be incorporated in the workplace. But Mm -hmm. um, on an individual level, it'd be great if you could have a device in your ears or headphones that was tracking your focus and give you personalized reports that was protected from the company itself to maximize your productivity and let you know when to take breaks and do the things that we talked about earlier in the podcast, like give you good songs that improve your focus and that type of thing. So uh, it's really open-ended right now. Yeah. Yeah. It it really does seem, I mean, I guess with most technologies, it is a double-edged sword, right? So there could be these phenomenal benefits for individuals, but there also could be some phenomenal benefits for the organizations if they want to use it uh, against their employees, if uh, if I can use that that kind of language. Um, uh, So, I, I mean, with the name of the of the podcast, right, Future Tech, uh, we've been talking a lot about what's happening now and a little bit about what happened before with this uh, neurotechnology. But um, maybe we can dive into kind of what the future of this of this fascinating industry. So uh, you mentioned, and I think I saw the other day that there's only some 26 organizations out there that are actually building these um, consumer neurotech or EEG devices uh, somewhere in the range of, of 26 or so. Um, could you touch on maybe because you're you're connected to all these uh, companies at least to a, a certain extent? Could you touch on um, whether you see more companies coming in at the, at the rate that they're coming in, and then we can also kind of move the conversation into the next kind of ten years or so with uh, with this industry? Yeah, a lot of these organizations are pretty small right now. So mm. even though you're saying a, a company, it might only be four people at this point that right, are trying to bootstrap right. their technology. And I just got off a call a couple of days ago with a gentleman who's in uh, Canada. And one of the things that I've been seeing is that uh, there's actually been government grant money pouring into these types of startups. So I think that they got a couple Mm. million dollars just to really get up and running, Mm. which was uh, really impressive in terms of how invested the government was in development of these technologies. So I think that uh, governmental institutions are taking these technologies very seriously. Uh, I've spoken to the DARPA, the German government. I've heard that NASA is really serious about this technology. Mm. So there's incentive for governmental bodies to get involved and fund uh, this type of research. Mm -hmm. And then I think VCs are becoming more and more interested as well, more and more funding coming into the space. So I think that more and more companies will continue to come into the scene. I think that probably what's going to happen over the next couple of years is there's going to be more and more acquisitions. So a lot of these smaller companies are going to get absorbed into larger companies. They're going to Mm -hmm. take on their hardware tech, their software expertise, and incorporate it into a, a device. And I think 
probably what is going to happen at some point is either the Facebook or Google, uh, one of the big tech companies is going to probably acquire one of these smaller neuroscience companies and start incorporating the biomarker technology into AR, VR glasses, mm -hmm. uh, headphones, or whatever else is uh, coming down the pipeline. So um, yes, I think more and more people will come into the space. I actually hope that it doesn't become some kind of <laughs> garbled mess of a bunch of different companies of four people that are working right. on the small niche applications. And it actually becomes uh, a larger concerted uh, coordinated effort to bring uh, devices that actually improve humanity to market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that as we get more devices, more as more people use them, we get more data and that feeds into the AI and machine learning algorithms, improves the efficacy of the wearable devices. And then it's just sort of feeds on itself because the better the devices become, the more interest from VCs yeah. and other funding agencies. And uh, you know, the more resources these companies have to further develop the tech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the with the specific companies uh, and the technologies available, have you seen maybe one type of technology or one type of device getting more interest than than others, and for that for that specific application? I think there's a lot of interest in uh, EEG and EOG, EMG mm -hmm. in headphones right in now. Headphones, yeah, yeah, because I think that uh, if you look at mainstream adoption, Nita said this best when I interviewed her um, that. The Muse, Emotive, these headbands that I've been wearing on YouTube, I think they're cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they're striking visually. It definitely raises an eyebrow when uh, you know people see my videos, that type of yeah. thing. Yeah. But are people really going to be wanting to wear these headbands around mm -hmm. in the general public? Right. Probably not. You feel a little weird. You stand out. You don't want to be... Most people don't want to be viewed as like the weird techie person that's sure. trying the next big thing. Because they're self-conscious, right? But if you start embedding these technologies into headphones or even AR and VR goggles that are mm. uh, more uh, common in yeah. the everyday uh, life and workforce, then I think that that's where you see more mainstream adoption of these technologies. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that before with the, uh, I guess, the social consciousness that we all have. Um, you, you would think that okay, headphones, earphones, maybe not that exciting, but it actually makes much more sense with uh, with regards to development and actually bringing these technologies into a kind of a specific application. Exactly. Uh, yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so, uh, so okay, we've we've talked about kind of the different kind of uh, technologies and the devices that are coming out. Uh, you mentioned earlier on about artificial intelligence and how that might, you know. Um, I guess mix quite nicely with uh, AR and VR uh, technologies. How do you see uh, again with the the advancements in a in AI that we've seen over the last five six months or so? Um, how do you see AI positively and perhaps even negatively impacting uh, this industry over say the next ten years? Well, the signal filtering is incredibly important. So yeah. obviously, if you get a better signal that's going to improve the efficacy of the devices. But if we have limitations because the skull is blocking, that yeah. pesky skull is blocking <laughs> us from that rich brain data, uh, we're going to need some better mechanisms to filter out noise that keeps us from uh, the, the, the pay dirt below the skull, which is the brain data. Generative AI, I think, is going to be just fascinating in so many regards. Mm -hmm. But really, 
there's been some research that was coming out recently out of uh, University of Austin, for example, where they were able to use generative AI and language models to take fMRI brain data and be able to um, come up with, like if a person was listening to a podcast and the AI had been trained on that person's neural data before, mm-hmm. it could take a new podcast and have the generative AI put text of what they thought the person was listening to and achieve up to 80 or 90% accuracy, even Mm. at this level. So generative AI is creating the capabilities of text generation from uh, technologies that can potentially be wearable and not invasive. Uh, The other thing Mm. that's coming out of it is uh, uh, image creation. So if you train an AI on, let's say you sit and watch six hours of YouTube videos, you've got your uh, brain being scanned that's feeding into the machine learning algorithm, and then you watch a new video, that AI can use those brain patterns to start uh, generating images that it thinks that you are watching. And in a lot of cases, uh, what you are watching and what you imagine have similar neural patterns. So you can start to imagine being able to project your thoughts through generative AI and create paintings, uh, you know, create, uh, you know, mind shows, anything mm-hmm. you can think of that would come out of that. And honestly, I don't think that we're that far away. I think that probably what we'll start seeing is, uh, you know, I think generative AI can pretty much make an image out of almost anything. Like if you gave it raw neural data, it could yeah. start c- creating mosaic images of what it thinks that you're thinking. And those might be kind of far off from what you're actually imagining in your mind. But as that gets better and better, I I foresee some really fantastic and fun technologies where you're able to project your thoughts by using uh, wearable technologies. That's fascinating, creepy, and amazing, all kind of mixed (laughs) together. So it might be that like the the future Instagram will not be necessarily taking pick uh, selfies and sharing it with people. It'll be like, Hey, check out this interesting idea or this image idea that I have, or this image in my mind that I have. That's wild. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, yeah, I I don't know what to think about that. I'll have to, I'll have to sit and maybe meditate on that (laughs) a little bit. I think we're getting closer because we can do it with fMRI now, Mm -hmm. but that Mm -hmm. requires a giant magnet and those machines cost $3 million. Right. Right. Uh, Colonel has her total head, coverage FNIR's helmet, and they don't have a use case for anything like that uh, so far, but it's really uh, similar technology. It's just blood flow from the cortex. I'm actually, I need to reach out to an fMRI scientist and see if they think that, because fMRI goes deeper into the cortical structures. Mm, so you mm. have like basal ganglia and deeper brain structures that are being analyzed as well. So I'm not sure how much those deeper brain structures actually feed into the ability to generate text or images, Mm. but as our neuroscience improves, I think that what we've seen, and this actually was in the University of Austin paper as well, is there's a lot of um, um, repetitive signals. So you could get the same information from the frontal lobe as you would from the language centers about what someone's watching. It's um, sort of repeated in different multiple areas of the brain. So it, it does seem possible that we could just use blood flow from the cortex to do a lot of these things. Mm. And again, it really comes down to the fidelity. It might not be as accurate as if you had fMRI images of deep cortical structures, but if you had FNIR's data of the of the cortex, I think that there's actually a lot that we could do there. 
And there's new technologies that are being developed that might yeah. allow us to see deeper into the brain. Um, Mary Lou Jepson's Open Water is working on um, using ultrasound to better focus near infrared light to get uh, higher resolution images of deeper brain structures. They've already demonstrated it uh, with rat models. Uh, right now, they've taken more of a clinical route. They're detecting uh, strokes and stroke victims in the ambulance before they ever get to the hospital so mm -hmm. that they uh, accelerate the delivery of uh, very important uh, medications that can lessen the impact of, of a stroke. But I think that once they have that uh, clinical case uh, figured out, they can raise more fundings to go towards the brain-computer interface uh, applications, which I know Mary Lou has talked about multiple times is what she ultimately wants to do. It's just that you have to bootstrap the company through different use cases and very important use cases at that. But mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, it sounds uh, sounds fascinating. It's such an interesting industry. I mean, it's an emerging industry, right? So it's it's fascinating to to uh, pay attention to, see the developments, and then also kind of like scratch your head and think like, okay, how how the future is going to turn out with this? Um, maybe maybe kind of the final question here for you, um, which you've already more or less uh, described, but once or if, but you know, once these. Um, these devices and this technology in general is uh, ubiquitously adopted, right? At a, at a very wide scale. How do you envision our future? Is it going to be the kind of uh, part of the essential technology set that will enable the metaverse? Or is this going to be a completely different uh, isolated technology? Uh, what, what's kind of your vision of the future with regards to uh, with this technology? I think in the near term, people will make choice whether they they want to use it or not. I think more of like how many people have fitness trackers, whoops, um, or aura rings. Mm -hmm. It's not everybody, but it's a good amount of the population that are using uh, fitness trackers. So I think for a while it will be like that. And then at a certain point, it will probably become more ubiquitous. Like everybody has, almost everybody has a smartphone these days. Yeah. So it depends on the use cases. I Again, I think that for the most part, they're going to be more of like a Fitbit for your brain for a while, which a lot of people will be into more of the biohacker crowd and mm -hmm. uh, high performance, uh, young, probably young professionals that, uh, you know, want to enhance their mental function. Although I'm sure other generations will want to use the technology as well. And then um, there's medical applications. So my hope is that mm. there is a brain assessment device in every clinic when it comes to psychiatric care, because the fact that we are not getting neural data and having people take psychotropic medications uh, yeah. without being able to assess and uh, you know keep track of of progress through data is just silly at this point. <laughs> but I understand the roadblocks that have been there up until now. But as this technology becomes cheaper, mm -hmm. I think that should definitely be a thing. So I, I see it in medical clinics. I see it being used at home for fitness. Uh, tracking. I see it being used in the, the workplace for performance enhancement. And then when we get the higher use cases of being able to project your thoughts uh, on the screen, it'll probably be like, Hey, I've got, uh, you know, it's like today. Oh, you, you know, probably a lot of people have VR headsets these days. Mm -hmm. They're kind of uh, fun to use every once in a while. And it, it'll probably be like that for, for, for a good amount of time. Like, Oh, you want to see my brain computer interface device in the closet here? Yeah. They're kind of fun yeah. to play with, you know? Yeah. And then later on, it's hard to tell. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. think anybody can tell what's going to happen 10 years out from now, just 
the way the AI is going and the way that things are happening, it's anybody's guess. Yeah. I like I like Brian Johnson's philosophy with with Kernel. He says, "Hey, we created the hardware, we've got the tool, and we don't like to make assumptions on uh, what this is going to be used for." Because I think that uh, a good example is like 10, 10, 20 years ago, how could we have predicted how smartphones would have been used today? So yeah. we're really in the same boat with the with the brain computer interface technology. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for coming on. I think that's a, I think that's a great way to, uh, to end the episode. Uh, I know that uh, you have a YouTube channel and a, and a website. Um, I can have those up in the show notes. Maybe you want to talk to them, uh, talk about them for a second, um, and maybe describe other ways that uh, listeners can reach out to you. Yeah. Uh, YouTube channel called, uh, tech for psych, a lot, a lot of long form content on there. I'm going to be creating more short form content from podcasts and different conversations I've had with people in the field. So be on a lookout uh, for that on TikTok and Instagram, as well as YouTube shorts and uh, the website, there's a contact, uh, there's a hello at tech for psych email. So if anybody is curious, wanting to reach out as far as uh, discussions about brain computer interface technology, feel free to reach out. Uh, I can't get back to everybody, but I do try to respond as much emails as I can yep. and uh, be be happy to respond if I can. So those are the resources. Perfect. Well, thanks again for your time, Cody. Uh, really appreciate it. And you've certainly made me think a little bit more about, about this fascinating technology. I, I'm not sure about the future as, as well, but uh, I think it's one um, one technology worth uh, keeping up with uh, as it might change uh, a lot of aspects of people's lives and society in general. So thanks again for coming on. Great. Thanks, Mark. So thanks for listening to this week's Future Tech and Foresight podcast. If you like what you've heard, here are a number of ways that you can go out and support the podcast. The best way would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or even give a rating on Spotify, which you can find a step-by-step explanation for on the futuretechandforesight.com website. Alternatively, feel free to leave a comment either on the episode show notes on the website or the YouTube channel where you can also see video recordings of each of the interviews. And finally, if you are part of an organization that is aware of the disruptive and transformational impact that emerging and future technologies will bring and want to know more, you can get in touch with me to hear about the strategic foresight services I offer and how I can help future-proof your organization and take advantage of the phenomenal opportunities available to survive and thrive in the future. A lot of future shock people and future shock institutions in our society are simply overwhelmed. Once there is superintelligence, the fate of humanity may depend on what the superintelligence does. Science fact is catching up to science fiction. The first truly intelligent machine will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. The only scarcity that will exist in the future is that which we decide to create ourselves as humans. Within a 10-year design revolution, we can have all humanity living the highest and living anybody's ever known. Progress is uh, accelerating at an exponential pace and it's going to reach a point where progress is so fast it's going to be a singularity. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Every single headline points to the birth pangs of a type 1 civilization. 